very much, Katie. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray that you would shine your light on this text this morning. And would we hear from you, please open the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our faith, uh, to see and behold you more clearly. And we pray that that would transform and change us and uh, give us joy in you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a youngster, I was always too, um, too much of a coward, really, to sign up for caving at school. I thought that, you know, the, the thought of being trapped underground in a small, hot, darkened space filled me with absolute dread. Um, plus, I've never particularly had a slim shape, and so I pictured myself easily getting stuck and then probably lost and separated from others. However, although I'm no expert, I understand that one of the things you can do to find your way out of a cave is actually to turn off your light. To turn off your light so that you can spot any glimmers of light shining in from the outside. And once you see a stream of light shining in from the outside, you know that the surface isn't very far away and you need to follow that light to safety. Of course, I'll never have that experience because I will never go caving. <laughs> but if you're anything like me, you will have had a similar feeling about um, this last 18 months, feelings of fear, disorientation, even despair at various points. Life in lockdown has in some ways felt like being trapped in a cave. You might have found it difficult to move forward or to make decisions when the path ahead seems blocked. Perhaps you found it hard to see what's around you or in front of you and you feel lost in the darkness of uncertainty. Maybe you felt hindered and stuck in the mud of lockdown restrictions. You might have found that the constant dripping of bad news has made you bitter and resentful. Or having lost sight of friends and other people, maybe you've sometimes felt alone and helpless. Of course, some of us will have experienced those things more acutely than others. But don't be mistaken, life in lockdown will have affected all of us in many ways and in various ways. We need to be realistic about that and acknowledge those things and that they may continue uh, to have an impact on us for a long time. In fact, over the next few months, we as a church would like to begin a process of reflecting on our lockdown experience as Christian people in the church. Because being a Christian doesn't mean pretending that everything is fine, nor does it mean ignoring the past and just sort of putting it aside uh, as much as we want to sometimes. It's actually good for us to name and to reflect on what we've been through and what God is doing and has done in it. And so we want to provide opportunities for people to share what it's been like, both good and bad, to lament what we've lost, to give thanks for God's goodness in and through our suffering, to learn from what God, God has taught us and to pray, entrusting ourselves to God going forward. 
And we'll say more about that exercise over the next few weeks and months, hopefully providing some um, different avenues and helpful resources um, to help us through that. But those resources and helps are not intended to be an end in themselves. Hopefully they'll act like torches, um, which help us to see more of where we are and, and what's around us. But the most essential thing we need throughout that whole process, throughout our whole lives coming out of this experience is a guiding light, a fixed point that doesn't dim or fade, but instead enlightens and enlivens us as we turn and draw closer to it. And our sermon this morning is centered around that fixed point in this single claim of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Radiating from that central claim, we'll hopefully see three things. Jesus is the light of the world who, number one, sheds light on the darkness within us. Number two, leads us through the darkness of death. And number three, gives us the light of his life. But first, let's um, illuminate, so to speak, the background of our text. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been following the spotlight on Jesus through the Feast of the Tabernacles, that festival commemorating how God remained and sustained his people through the wilderness wanderings. That joyous time was marked by three symbols. I'm sure you remember them. Water, light, shelters or, or tents, dwelling places. And last week, we read how on the last and greatest day of the festival, when the water drawing ceremony was going on, um, Jesus stood up and declared loudly, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I.e. the water that gushed from the rock in the desert was a symbol of what I bring now. You'll discover and receive those living waters promised by your prophets when you come to me, says Jesus. So come drink. Now there's a reason we've seem seemly, sorry, seemingly uh, skipped John chapter 7 verse 53 to 8 verse 11 in our sermon series. So you might be wondering why we didn't read that part this morning. And the reason is somewhat debated, but there is good evidence that that passage was inserted into some manuscripts at some point after John wrote his book. In fact, your Bible probably has a footnote saying something to that effect. The earliest manuscripts don't include it. Now, that doesn't mean that the story in John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11 isn't true. It may have happened. It just means that it probably doesn't belong here. What's more, although there are good arguments either way, there is evidence that even in the text itself, John 8, 1 to 11 doesn't belong here. So on balance, I think it's right to conclude that that section is not original to John's gospel, which is why I'm not touching on it this morning. If that raises any questions, I'd be happy to talk about the, the external evidence, the manuscript evidence, or the internal evidence, the textual evidence after the service, and to point you in good direction um, for arguments either side. 
But in my mind, at least, John chapter 8, verse 12, flows naturally from John 7, verse 52. Still on the last day of the festival, as the water is being poured out and in front of the temple, which was lit up by blazing candles, recalling the fire that went before the people in the wilderness, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. For now, let's assume that Jesus is speaking at the same time in the same place as before and return to that central point. Jesus is the light of the world. It's not uncommon for people to be described as leading lights. Um, it's for good reason that people like uh, Florence Nightingale, a particular, particular favorite uh, in our family, or Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela are considered leading lights in history for their contributions to the world. And there are statues all over the place commemorating them, rightly. But notice Jesus doesn't just describe himself as a light, but the light. That's an astonishing claim. It's much like what John wrote in chapter 1, when he wrote that Jesus is the light of all mankind and the true light that gives light to everyone. And so it's no surprise that many object to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Because even the recognized leading lights of history have their critics. Winston Churchill's statue had to be guarded by police last year, if you remember, from being graffitied and, and vandalized. The Queen's portrait was taken down in an Oxford um, College common room because for some it represented recent colonial history. You don't have to be Edward Colston or Cecil Rhodes to come under the judgment of contemporary culture. Statues are falling all over the world right now. Whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, the point is no one is beyond criticism. Even our brightest lights dim and sometimes burn out. As scripture says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. In other words, there is no one who is innately good in themselves. No one who is without darkness. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, Jesus isn't just anyone. He is God from God. Light from light, the one who turns water into wine, the one who heals from a distance, the one who restores the paralyzed, who provides food from nothing, who is recognized by the sea he walks on as the creator, who is the bread of life himself. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, is not a statement of arrogance, but an invitation to see him for who he truly is. Perhaps you saw something of that solar eclipse that Mike mentioned on Thursday. Um, I find it incredible. You know, forget today, you know, which is glorious and bright. You know, you can't, you can't look at the sun on a day like today. But even when the sun is blocked by the moon during an eclipse, we still can't look at the, uh, the sun's outer rays. Because they're so bright, they will damage our eyes. 
Friends, the light of Christ is even brighter than the sun because he is the light that gives light to the sun. He is the great I am. The Lord who spoke with Moses, declaring his name as the one who simply is, I am who I am, now says, I am the light. But not just the light for some. He says, I am the light of the world. Those of you studying plants and animals at school will know that light is essential to life. It's the main source of energy for all living creatures. When you take light away, plants die. And we humans need natural light too. It's good for our minds and our bodies. When we forget or neglect that, things go downhill pretty quickly. But you know, that's even more true of the light of Christ. There is not one person on this entire planet who does not rely on the light of Christ for life. Through him, all things were made. There's not one person who can survive in this life and beyond without him. I am the light of the world without exception, says Jesus. Sadly, the Pharisees don't see it that way. They think it's outrageous that Jesus could say that. And so in their imaginary courtroom, they attempt to play judge and they move Jesus from the witness stand and they put him in the dock. They say in verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. But they've got things backwards. It's Jesus who should be their judge. He's the divine son who's come from the father. Yet the reason they can't see that is because they are living in the dark. Spiritually speaking, they are blinded by their sin and to the light of Christ. What they need, what we all need, is Jesus Christ whose light shines on us in those three ways I mentioned at the beginning. First, he sheds the light, he sheds light on the darkness within us. Verse 12 again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. The stark reality is without Christ, the light of the world, we live in darkness. We human beings stumble along and aimlessly without direction and blind to that reality, holding on to whatever we can get our hands on, hurting ourselves and other people through the process. That's our natural state. By hiding from God's light, we've effectively blindfolded ourselves so that even the good things that we experience, we can't appreciate or understand or enjoy properly. The trouble is none of us know any different naturally. And so we don't see the need for the light. In fact, when we encounter it, we'd rather not be exposed by it, because it's painful. Our car was in such a state recently, um, after we'd been on holiday. There was sand and dirt and muck and breadcrumbs from our sandwiches and uh, sweet wrappers everywhere. Um, it got so bad that Nicola rightly said, I think we need to get this professionally cleaned. And I agreed, and I wanted to, and no amount of effort on my part would, would 
be able to bring it back up to scratch. But I was just so embarrassed to take it to the guys on the Southern Road because they're so good at their job and they look everywhere and through all the nooks and crannies and I just, I didn't want them to see it. When Jesus sheds his light on us, it's exposing. He sees what's really there. For example, just consider the Pharisees in this passage. They undoubtedly considered themselves good and upright. Other people probably did too. But listen to Jesus' verdict on them in verse 19. You do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus sees their unbelief. The leaders of the faith don't even know God. Verse 21. I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus sees their sin, the sin that leads to the ultimate darkness, death, where there is no light and life. And verse 30, uh, sorry, 23, Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Jesus sees their spiritual homes, their habitats, and it's not where God is. In themselves, they know nothing of God's light. In fact, when it came to them from above, they wanted to snuff it out. And so Jesus warns them against remaining in the dark. Should they continue to hide away from the light of Christ, they will be consumed by their own darkness forever. Brothers and sisters, is that how you view your sin? You know, whenever we choose to walk in sin, we choose to walk into darkness where we only do harm on ourselves. On the other hand, as much as it is painful to be found out or to admit our guilt or our wrongdoing, being exposed to the light is good. It's always good. The light of Christ enlightens us. By the Spirit, it helps us to see what is good and right and true and to live wisely and well. It helps us to see the harmful things around us. He sheds his light on the scriptures, for example, enabling us to perceive and understand him there. Jesus has come to shed light on our darkness. Second, by his light, he leads us through the darkness of death. You've probably noticed how time is really important in John's gospel. And remember in the prologue, John took us right back to the beginning of the creation of the world. And then he took us to the incarnation, the time of, of Jesus' coming. And so far, this story has gone at quite a pace. We've ventured through multiple festivals and occasions. And by the end of the book, we're going to slow right down from, from season by season to almost hour by hour. But every now and then on our journey there, Jesus himself makes reference to a specific hour. He says to Mary in John chapter 2, for example, my hour has not yet come. And John, the writer of this gospel, says something similar in chapter 7, verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And we have another reference here in our passage to Jesus' hour. John 8, verse 20. 
He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. What is this hour? What is he talking about? Well, as the gospel unfolds, what we see is that the hour refers to the climax of Jesus' mission on that hill outside Jerusalem at Golgotha. The hour when the Son of Man would be lifted up, as Jesus says in verse 30, when darkness will cover the whole land and the light of the world will be extinguished. Jesus didn't just come to dwell. He came to die. By the will of God, he was sent by the Father into our dark world to suffer the darkness of death in the place of people who cannot escape it. But that's not all, dear friends, because light overcomes darkness. And so by defeating the darkness of death at the resurrection, Jesus can deliver us from it. Many people are afraid of death, not just in the world, in the church too. For many years, personally speaking, the thought of death consumes me to the point where I wasn't really able to live. But when we, those who follow Christ, face death, whether that's tomorrow or sometime way into the future, it will not lead to darkness. Rather, it leads to life and light, infinitely brighter than we know it now. In John's vision in Revelation, he describes how there will be no more night in the new creation. Because people will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light. He will give them light. And you know, when you're confident of that, when you hold on to that as your future, it will change how you live now. It actually liberates you from living in fear moment by moment. That might be something you can reflect on and pray about with others as part of this learning from lockdown project. Perhaps this last year has made you realize, like me, for many, many years, that, that you're living in fear of death. If that's you, please don't go away discouraged. Be encouraged, because there is hope, great hope. And just admitting that is a step into the light, the light of Christ. And be assured, because by his light, he will lead us through the darkness, the darkness of this world that we experience now, and the darkness we'll face with our last breath. He will remain with us all the way through to the other side. Third, and much more briefly, Jesus, the light of the world, gives us the light of his life. Back to verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus promises that if we follow the light, we will have the light. What does it mean to have light, to have the light of life? Well, in the ancient world, eyes were commonly thought of as lights, and you can kind of see why. Whatever direction you point them in, um, things are illumined for you. You can, you can see, a bit like torches. But 
Perhaps, again, some of you at school will um, have already learned how our eyes actually work more like cameras than torches. When you look at something, your eyes don't shine light on the object. Actually, it's the light reflected from the thing you're looking at, the object, that enters our eyes, and it goes through our cornea, and then, um, oh, biology teachers are going to go crazy here, but it goes through our cornea and pupil and, and the lens inside the eye and to the retina, and from there, things happen, and uh, <laughs> cells turn the light into electrical signals into the brain, and we see. And I think, generally speaking, the more light reflected into our eyes, the, the better we see. Well, the same is true spiritually. Naturally, we don't possess light inside of us. The light we receive we, that enlivens us and helps us to see is reflected to us by the light. We cannot see, we cannot live without the light given to us. And that's what's so beautifully expressed in, in Psalm 36, verse 9, where David says of the Lord, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In your light we see light. So, friends, if you want to be led to that fountain and drink from the waters of life, follow the light of Christ. If you want to see better, to see the world outside of the perspective of a cave, follow the light of Christ. If you want to emerge from lockdown with renewed hope and strength, then turn off your torches of distraction or self-confidence or whatever little rays you turn to when you need help getting out of dark and mucky situations. And turn your gaze to the light, the light that shines down from above. Follow the light of Christ. Let's dwell in that light now as we come before God in prayer. I'm going to pray um, a beautiful prayer written not by me, but by Augustine. O holy and unspeakable, wonderful and mighty God, your power and wisdom have no end. Before you all powers tremble. At your glance the heavens and the earth flee away. You are love. You are my Father, and I will love and worship you forever and ever. You have shown pity on me, and a ray from your light has shone on mine inward eye. Guide me into the perfect light, that it may illuminate me wholly, and that all darkness may flee away. Let the holy flame of your love burn in my heart, that it may be made pure, and I may see you, O God. It is the pure of heart who see you. You have set me free. You have drawn me to you. Therefore, forsake me not, but keep me always in your grace. Guide me, rule me, and perfect me for your kingdom. Amen.